This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The New Zealand Council of Women present the 50th anniversary of their annual Hilda Lovell Smith suffrage event. Asking the question, how do young women today see life for women in Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2040? Former Christchurch Mayor and Labour MP Leanne Dalzell brings her insights from her life in public service as the first guest speaker. She is followed by a panel discussion featuring Trujana Chetri, a public servant and community advocate, Aurora Garner Randolph, climate and feminist activist, and Ella Starr, business owner and tradeswoman of the year, who discuss this topic from a variety of perspectives. The final speaker for the event is author Margaret Lovell Smith, whose great aunt Hilda started the Christchurch branch of the New Zealand Council of Women and in whose memory the event is named. Thank you very much for inviting me to make some introductory remarks at this annual event. I've attended the event before in the past, um, and so it really is an honour and a privilege to be able to say a few words to get the evening going tonight. Each year, as you've heard, this is, a, this is an opportunity um, to honour the women who saw the need for continuing to promote women's equality as well as improving the welfare of families that was very important to them uh, following the achievement of suffrage in 1993. And I guess for them, winning the vote wasn't the end of the journey. It was only a milestone along the way, albeit an important one. And it was the birth of the National Council of Women that followed that um, three years later. As you know, this this event is named for Hilda Lovell Smith, um, and, and, and it was because of her role as a past president of NCW Otatahi Christchurch, uh, and as you've probably seen from some of the slides, she was known as Kitty, and that was for her middle name, which was Kate, because a good family friend, she was named for a good family friend, um, Kate Shepherd, and she took her, her middle name. Um, and as you've also heard, it's now 50 years since Hilda Lovell Smith died, An obituary described her as a woman with a fine mind, tolerance, and a deep understanding of people. And it is is great that her memory is kept alive through this annual event. Now, tonight, as you've heard, is all about the young women. uh, And I guess uh, my message is that it is important to keep telling these stories from our past because they remind us of who has gone before um, and who have had to fight for things that our generation and now potentially their generation uh, can take for granted. And I guess the risk in taking anything for granted is that no matter how hard won, things that you have fought for in the past don't necessarily survive the changing of um, a political tide or even just the circumstances of history. And sometimes we can't let that idea that things that we take for granted, we just can't assume they'll always be there. And that's why it's important to keep telling these stories, to keep reminding ourselves of where these rights have been won and how they've been won. Um, and I think, and I just use the example of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. That has required now American women, for the first time in 50 years, it was the same year, 1973, that Roe v. Wade was passed, was um, carried by the Supreme Court, and it just shows you that 50 years later, you can be back fighting the same struggles that have been um, hard won before. Um, This means that it is more important than ever that we remember what our forebears went through, how they achieved what they achieved, Um, and one thing I want to talk about tonight is who they worked with in order to achieve those goals. Um, I say this because we need to look for allies, those who will work with us um, when we want to win the hearts and minds of those in decision-making positions, 
and also those who will work with us because the goal is something that we have in common. And I think we often forget to mention that men had to vote for suffrage for women um, in order for women to get the right to vote. And uh, I was reminded of this recently. I went out and visited Sir John Hall's family home in Hororata a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know how many in the room have been out to see it, but it certainly is worth the journey, um, and it's got a great history to it. Um, and uh, it was great to be able to listen to um, his great-granddaughter, Kate, um, explaining um, a lot about the history. Now, there I saw a copy of the actual electoral act, his printed copy of it, where he had underlined the relevant segments that had enabled women to have the vote that year. And I, I thought it was kind of magic to be able to actually see it, but it just reminded me of how important it was. He was a strong advocate for reform, and he worked very closely with Kate Shepherd, even encouraging her to carry on when petition after petition had failed. And that's another part of the story that sometimes gets forgotten. This was not the first petition in um, 1893. It was the third of the, of the longer petitions. There had been attempts to petition Parliament before, and actually things had got pretty dire. There was um, a feeling that perhaps it wasn't going to be a successful way. But Sir John certainly encouraged its continuation, which is why Dunedin played such an important part um, in gathering signatures for the petition as well. And it was a huge petition, as we know. Um, and I guess that um, what it reminds us is that you, can, you, you must always have the courage to carry on and, and to never give up. And I think the courage and, uh, and the ability to, to, to carry on, even in the face of adversity, that has been the history of many of the rights that we have won um, over the generations. When... NCW gathered here in Otatahi Christchurch for the first time on the 13th of April 1896. They understood very clearly that winning the vote had only been a first step towards equality. Resolutions passed at those early NCW meetings uh, demanded that the law be made equal for men and women in areas such as marriage and employment. Um, they urged that women be able to be elected to Parliament. Well, that took some time to happen. It didn't happen straight away. Um, and to be appointed to uh, public offices such as the police and to be able to serve um, on juries. They argued for free and longer education for children. They advocated universal old age pensions um, and prison reform and the abolition of capital punishment. You can actually see how far that we've come, but we need to acknowledge that there is still some way to go before we can say that we've even achieved the goals that were set out um, over 125 years ago. Tonight we're going to be doing some future thinking. How do young women today see, the, um, see life for women in Aotearoa, New Zealand in 2040? I'm going to be 80 in 2040. This is terrifying. Um, I, uh, that's if I'm alive. Um, I worked in the trade union movement before I entered uh, Parliament. And I remember the FOL secretary, uh, Ken Douglas, uh, in the day, talking about the importance of uh, the rear vision mirror. You had to keep an eye on it if you wanted to see clearly on the road ahead. If you wanted to drive safely, you had to keep your eye on the rear vision mirror. Good advice for the road, but equally good advice for life. If we don't know our history, we are forever condemned to repeat its mistakes. The other message that we can take, though, is that we don't have to live in the past. It's only an eye on the rear vision mirror. It's not about being stuck in the past. I looked back to in my system and I found a speech that I gave to NCW when I was the Minister of Women's Affairs back in 2007. And this is what I said in 2007, so quite a wee while ago. It is certainly no time to rest or to assume that gains so recently made um, and with so much effort cannot be readily reversed. Um, in international forums 
on the rights of women, New Zealand increasingly finds itself fighting to retain advances won in the 1980s and 1990s rather than having the opportunity to promote further progress. There is a type of conservatism influencing the international agenda that hides behind the banner of family values. These are values we all are committed to, but those of us who wish to advance the place of women, not see us regress, uphold family values in a form that is respectful of everyone's human rights, not just those of a privileged few. The suffragists who fought for the vote in the 19th century knew that the struggle was ultimately to change hearts and minds and not just change the law. That struggle is still with us today. We must remind ourselves just how many of our rights have been gained in our lifetime and ensure that today's young women who are growing up in a generation that has not had to struggle for those rights learn the lessons of the past and take nothing for granted. So I've written the first part of my speech before I realised that I've said it all before. Um, and there is a, a French saying that goes, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, this caused me to reflect on attending the World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction in Sendai in March 2015. And it was pretty much 20 years to the day after I attended the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. If there was one thing that was reinforced both times, and this is about history repeating, it was the need for women to be at the table when decisions are made. The challenges we face are greater today than they have ever been, disasters caused by natural events or man-made, and I choose the word man quite deliberately, climate change, extreme weather events, from storms to droughts, extreme violence, terrorism, income inequality. If women don't sit at the table when the decisions are made about how to combat every single one of these, then women are condemned to continue to be their greatest victims. That was the message in 1995, and it was exactly the same message that I heard in 2015. And it is true in every sphere of life. If we don't have diversity in council, um, cabinet, boardrooms, senior leadership teams, the list goes on, then we don't get the benefit of a range of perspectives and thoughts. And that's how to tackle complex issues. No single perspective can resolve complexity on its own. I've discovered a phrase that calls for radical collaboration when addressing these issues. That means instead of competing to find solutions, to find answers, we, we find ways to work together with everyone who has a perspective to bring to the table. And I found that these three descriptors, um, because I thought, well, I'd Google radical collaboration. It's been around for a bit longer than it felt that, you know, that I was able to find it. I didn't... I hadn't heard of it until um, uh, earlier this year with the, with the floods and, and how you recover from massive events like that. And radical collaboration requires people to work together, um, coming from a whole range of different backgrounds. But I found this example, of, or the three descriptors, that I thought go together really well. In healthy collaborations, people share a common purpose use their unique skills, hold their egos in check, and display trust and compassionate empathy. To co-create initial in initiatives with disparate partners, collaborators must feel an intoxicating sense of purpose. I love that, intoxicating sense of purpose. Share ownership of ideas and bring unlikely partners to the table. Business schools should nurture morally courageous leaders who understand the power of collaboration and are focused on making business a force for good. When I think about keeping egos in check, displaying trust, compassion and empathy, sharing ownership of ideas and morally courageous leaders, it is to the women from our past who inspire us today 
that I turn to as we think about our future and the challenges that we'll have to face. And that's why tonight is not about hearing from me. It is about future thinking, and I'm looking forward to hearing from this generation of young women. How are they going to inspire us all with their thoughts about what they are excited about, what they see as the challenges, what are those wicked problems that face women and girls today, and how might these be tackled? These are all intergenerational issues, and we all need to play our part with an eye on the rear vision mirror at the same time as a firm grip on the road ahead. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā ratato katoa. Thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you for reminding us all that we still have so much to learn from history and we must keep learning from it, that collaboration is the way we can get things done and that we absolutely have to have women at the table. So thank you very much for that. All right, we'll just get the panel to introduce themselves. So, my name is Susanna. I'm born in Nepal, raised in New Zealand, so in the middle of both societies. Um, so, what I do is I am a community engagement advisor at the Electoral Commission, and part of what I do is to go into communities and teach communities about. New Zealand democracy, importance of participation, and encourage people to vote. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be part of this panel. So a little bit of my background is I am from a society where women have to fight and advocate just to be seen that they are worthy of getting education, that there is value in getting education because how they view it is you're a woman, you're just going to be someone's wife and mom, there's no point of education. So seeing that as a child and coming to New Zealand and being in a place where, yes, I feel like a lot of us young people do take some things for granted, just like being able to go to school. So coming to New Zealand, it has been a transformation not only for myself, but many women, many young girls in my community who are the first ever person from their family to go to universities. So I was the first ever person to go to university, to get a career, and that's how we are transforming. <laughs> there will be a lot to talk about, but thank you so much. Kia everyone. It's such a pleasure to be invited to speak here today alongside such other amazing guests. Um, I feel really honoured. My name is Aurora and I'm a Year 13 student at high school at Avonside Girls High School. And I'm an environmental and feminist activist. Those are my credentials. Um, my, my environmental activism at the moment usually looks like um, my engagement with School Strike for Climate. I'm one of the leaders of the Autotahi branch, um, and I've been lucky enough to be with them for several years now. I joined when I, I think I was in year 11, so I was, I was pretty young and pretty new to politics and activism and climate science and all that kind of stuff. And I've grown alongside that group of um, environmental activists, which are predominantly women, are predominantly girls, um, and it's, it's been a real honor to organize strikes and protests with them over the years. Um, but I've also worked on various different other environmental campaigns against the aerospace industry, worked with various different climate organizations. Um, and I'm also a feminist advocate um, against youth sexual harm. So at Avonside Girls High School last year, uh, there was a lot of conversation about the amount of sexual harassment going on on campus and in the wider world against the girls at our school. And I led a student campaign to get, to bring more attention to this, and that resulted in a survey of sexual harassment conducted at Avonside Girls High School, but also at our neighbouring Shirley Boys High School, um, which revealed a 
disappointing but not surprisingly huge amount of sexual harms and sexual violence that these young people were experiencing. And out of that, I've had amazing opportunities to talk um, on national radio with Kim Hill about that experience. And I'm going to keep advocating um, about the importance of talking about consent education and law reform to support victims of sexual violence. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Alistair. Sorry, I'm a little bit ginger this evening. I have a nerve injury. Um, I am a self-employed certified plumber and gas fitter. Um, my business is called Plumberella. Um, that's actually the tagline, is if the boot fits. Um, I am thank you. I have been uh, self-employed for just over a year and a half. I have been in the trade for eight years. And um, it did take quite some time to get to where I am now. Uh, initially, I, uh, in high school, wanted to be a mechanic, um, but was uh, very strongly advised that women didn't belong in workshops. Um, so I spent eight or nine years working in customer service and hospitality, which I absolutely detested. Um, several car dealerships at which I worked um, treated me uh, like a glorified piece of meat. Um, so now being in the position that I am um, as a, a self-employed tradeswoman, um, I try and build community through Instagram, that's how I met Zoe, um, and I actually just spent the weekend in Queenstown with 35 other tradeswomen from around the country. Uh, we're hoping to make it an annual event. Um, this is our second one ever. Um, and the uh, community response from manufacturers and suppliers has been absolutely incredible. Um, we did goodie bags this year, um, for which the, the contents of which would have been well in excess of a few hundred dollars. Um, we're talking t-shirts and stationery and caps and nothing, nothing big, but just an expression of support, which really goes a really, really long way. So uh, this year we had, um, for an example of trades this year, I was the only plumber, um, but we had uh, many painters. Um, I was completely outnumbered by builders. Uh, we had several electricians, we had a welder. Um, we even had a sprinkler technician. So it was really, um, it was a really cool thing to be able to facilitate what I'm hoping to be long-standing friendships um, within the tradeswomen community. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna start with the questions that are up on the slideshow here. So the first question that I'm gonna to bring to the panel is a positive one. And that is, what are you excited about for the future? Thinking forward to 2040, what are we excited about? Do you wanna start, Laura? Yeah, of course. What I'm really excited about as a female environmental activist is how young women are stepping up um, to do climate action. Um, you know, I've been organising in Ototahi locally um, for several years and I've also become involved with national climate activist teams, School Strike and various other organisations. And what I see is women of all generations leading environmental activism, being the backbone of it, and also out in the front being spokesperson, being spokespeople and talking about the climate crisis. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, I, in our local team, um, it's almost entirely fronted by young women. Um, I am absolutely proud to <laughs> have led a group of younger high school students, um, young girls, into the space and to be learning together about the climate crisis um, and I think I think it's very clear Leanne Delzell mentioned this in her speech that men have had the reins on political power regarding climate decisions for a long long time 
they've held the positions of power, they've been prime minister, they've been president, they've been the head of the climate polluting companies that have, have led us to the dire position that this planet is in now. And so it's incredibly encouraging to me to see all these, in, these powerful young women stepping up and taking control of the climate activism space. So the question, what are you excited about going into the future? There are many things that I'm excited about, um, but what I would like to share is I'm excited about young women breaking intergenerational cycle. So as I mentioned earlier, some of the women in my community um, going to university, um, being the first one from their family, and I kind of see this as like a training ground that they will not only be doing amazing things here in New Zealand and contributing to the society, but also doing it all around the world. So going back into the suffrage movement, what they fought for is enabling us to step up. And I'm very excited to see what we do here in New Zealand, how it goes all over the world and empowering women all over the world. And what we are doing here tonight is you guys are also giving us the platform to voice and also um, to learn from each other. So another thing I'm excited about is hearing the diversity of thoughts tonight. Um, well, perhaps a little controversially, um, I would like to say that I would be excited that organisations like this would not be necessary. Uh, but as a realist, I would say that uh, I am not trying to build an empire, I'm just laying the foundations. So we'll move on to the next question, and this is around the challenges that you see um, in the future for women and girls. Are there any particular challenges that you foresee, things you want to discuss? Someone take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, when I got sent these questions in the email, I was looking at it and oh my god, challenges for women, let me count the ways. Like, <laughs> the list goes on and I, I thought of a way to narrow it down is to think about the women around me and to think about my female friends and the challenges that they faced um, and so today when I went into school and I sat down in my class I talked to the, the group of friends I had at my table and I said what would you say to this question um, and I spoke to my friend Kate who said I've been battling endometriosis for years and the health system won't take me seriously and I know so many other women who the health system do not take their reproductive issues seriously. And I went, wow, that is, that is absolutely true. And I, I spoke um, to some feminist contacts, I said, who, talk, who told me about abortion access and how surprisingly, shockingly bad it is in this country still, you know, despite us holding on to the legality of it, thank goodness. Actually, in many rural areas, it's really difficult to get that service, and there's still loads of barriers for women to access their, you know, their reproductive rights. Um, and I thought about the distressingly high number of female friends that I have that have been in emotionally or sexually or physically abusive relationships, and I thought about the huge challenge of sexual violence that still exists in our country, even in this age. Um, and I thought about my good friend who is planning to go traveling all around the world. She's got this amazing plan to go to all these different countries and she's having to plan very carefully about her safety as a solo female traveler. And I thought about it and wished that she could be able to travel with the same freedom that men have. Um, and <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of challenges for women still, but I do have hope that we women as a community, we talk about these issues between ourselves and that we can organize and have solidarity 
um, to push for that vision of liberation. On that, um, I'll just follow up by asking you and your personal opinion. What do you think, what are ways to avoid, avoid these challenges and who do you think um, the pressure needs to be put on to make these changes and what, what's your personal opinion on that? Yeah, it, I mean, changes on these issues come from all different directions and from all different angles. So we need societal and structural change on this. We need it at a government level. I've just finished writing my year 13 end of year and scholarship health report about youth sexual harm. And when I was researching that, I found a couple of really kind of shocking statistics that I wasn't aware of, even as a feminist. Um, for example, um, up until 2014 in New Zealand, um, I think it was 45% of sexual assault cases were dismissed by the police. Um, and when they took a review on that, that number dropped down to 4%. So, which was an indication that for so many years, a huge amount of incidences of sexual harm that were being reported to the police weren't, weren't being dealt with, weren't being taken seriously. Um, and so we need change at an institutional national level to make sure that issues like sexual violence are being taken seriously. And another thing that I was researching um, for this report is that our definition of consent in Aotearoa still is not an affirmative model. Um, so the New Zealand law defines consent as what is not consent if people you know, are unconscious or actively saying no. But it does not have an affirmative model, which is defining a yes during sexual experiences. And in practice, that piece of law makes it more difficult for victims of sexual violence to get justice. Um, and an affirmative consent model has been implemented in Australia, so we know it can be done, but, but we need to bring that to this country. We need to be making those changes. So yeah, we definitely need governmental level change, but we also need community change. Um, patriarchal culture and kind of interpersonal misogyny um, can't just be eradicated with the, the flip of a, a legislative pen. That's something that takes years and that takes difficult conversations and that takes male allies actually stepping up and having those conversations with their male friends who are perpetrating acts of harm. Um, so yeah, we need a lot of change, surprise. Yeah, that's my piece. I have a mic on to Shuzana in terms of what do you think are the challenges for the future for young women? And I want to focus on um, women who don't really have a voice or a say. And, you know, there are groups of women here in New Zealand where everything just gets imposed on them. And one of the biggest challenge is not having a choice to do what they want to do with their lives, but everything just gets imposed on them. So one of the biggest challenge is letting them know that they can do amazing things, whatever they want to do, and they don't have to kind of do what the society or the expectation that is on them. And it is very tricky because, again, like when someone doesn't know that they have a choice, they will likely just fall under and they just suffer in silence. So that is one of the biggest challenges that I see is when someone doesn't believe or has no one to believe in them or doesn't even have any awareness and it's just very difficult to reach out to them. And these group of women, young women, they continue to suffer in silence, even though there might be a lot of um, support services out there, but when they don't really know, they will continue to be just in the dark. And that's one of the biggest challenges that I see. And 
how we can target that is just again having this difficult conversation and it needs a lot of empathy and that's the thing with diversity of thoughts it's like you may have a different opinion they may have a different opinion and just being able to demonstrate that empathy and understand and um, it, it can be quite challenging to navigate especially with different cultural dynamics and um, protocols and things but always remembering that there are a group of women who are at very disadvantaged here living here in New Zealand. Um, on that, uh, who do you think should be having these conversations? Like, for instance, is it appropriate to be outside of that cultural group and try to have those conversations with women? Is that an appropriate sort of thing to do? Or, you know, how do we start these conversations? How do we acknowledge that some of, some of the women in New Zealand are living, like you said, sort of in an imposed lifestyle like can you sort of um, that's a very good question um, I can give an example of what I did in the past is I went into different schools um, meeting with some of the teachers and counselors because there were young girls being forced to get married and at that time there was no such legislation um, now there is that you have to be 16 years but there was no thing in in place to protect them. And um, just being able to speak to the teachers so they know how to support these young girls who are going through such things. So one of the way that you can always reach out to this community group is just taking that learning approach, not going into as like, I know the best, what is best for you, but actually learning, going to them and learning about them and continue to remind them, actually, you can be whatever you want to be. Yes, there is this, this, and reminding them that when something is imposed on them, forced on them, that is a violation of human rights because everyone should have a choice. So one of the ways that you can reach out is take the learning approach and go to the community. If you're in um, working in services that that supports women and young children, I would say make those connections. Don't be afraid. Just don't forget that these community groups exist here in Aotearoa. Yeah, I'll pass it back to And the question is, what do you think of the challenges? This is probably one of the ones that I struggled with the most, um, to be honest. I personally <laughs> couldn't really think of a decent answer. Um, being raised by a single mother who was always a reasonably strong advocate for doing whatever made my heart sing. Um, turns out it's fine, but there you go. Um, I, I was never challenged in the home environment um, with this sort of systemic misogyny and it was always do whatever you want um, you can be whatever you want you can do whatever you want um, so yeah, it was a shock in high school and I was told that we weren't allowed to be in workshops because I'd been riding bikes and building tree huts and, and, and going ealing since I could walk so it was a bit of a shock for me to, to find that these weren't normal things for little girls to do um, so I suppose that a, a massive shift in the yeah the systemic misogyny would be would be a really big challenge to overcome um, for people to be whatever they want to be as a human right. Um, uh, I believe that would be a, a really beneficial change. All right. So moving on to this question, the next question, which is what are the wicked problems for women that need to be solved? So what are the really, really significant, gritty, horrible problems in society that we think need to be solved for young women 
going forward and thinking ahead to 2040, thinking ahead to some of the things we've already discussed, what are some of the really, really horrible things that we... Look, my take is going to come back to it again and again. It's the climate crisis. It is a women's rights issue. And people often don't think of it as being one, but it absolutely is. So we've, we've been burning fossil fuels for a long time. We've been completely overheating the planet, and we're getting more extreme weather events. And a lot of people are going to be displaced because of those. They're going to lose their houses. They're going to lose their livelihoods. They're going to lose their lives. And we know from a lot of crises that women are the ones who are most impacted by that. We know that a majority of climate migrants are women, a large disproportionate um, majority. Um, and as the climate crisis gets worse, we are going to see difficulties in a huge, a huge range of areas. If you care about women having access to good quality healthcare, then you should care about the climate crisis. Um, if you care about women not being subjected to violence, then you should care about the climate crisis because when economic difficulties kick in and everybody's living in hardship, violence does increase and that will be targeted towards those most vulnerable women and children. If you, if you care about women's opportunities for freedom and for economic freedom and to succeed, then you should care about the climate crisis because the climate crisis is not just an environmental crisis, it's going to impact our economy and our world structure and all of these things that, we've, that we rely on so heavily. Um, so absolutely, it's right that women should be stepping up um, to, to deal, to ask the real questions about the climate crisis and hold those disproportionately accountable, responsible. Um, and I, I will say, as an anecdote, um, that just because the climate activism space, the, the sort of gendered backbone, is women, there is still misogyny, even in that progressive environmental activism space. Um, we shouldn't just think of it as a sort of excellent, neutral space where women can thrive. I'll, I'll give you an example. Even just yesterday, um, I got uh, an email in the National School Strike for Climate um, group, which said, we're looking for young people to come and talk about climate crisis on this panel coming up to the, the COP um, international conference. Um, we are looking for a male. We have, we've had far too many <laughs> young, um, passionate women applying, and we need to be balancing this out. And I went, oh my god, we can't win, can we? <laughs> it, was, it was so incredibly frustrating to hear that all of these passionate young women were stepping up to the plate for this conference, and they were being battered away in order to save space for males at the table. Um, and I said my part, and I said how ridiculous I thought that was. Um, if young women were the most passionate about this, then why not let them shine? Um, and I got a very nasty response from a lot of male activists. Um, so, absolutely, misogyny is rampant in all parts of our society. How wonderful. Um, but, yeah, I'll leave you on that depressing note. I'm um, actually going to change the conversation. <laughs> so, um, what I want to know is... So obviously this is a really, really significant problem and you see this as a biggie. And we, I think we're all aware of the ongoing issues of climate change and I think we're all aware of the significance, especially going into the future. It's probably one of the biggest things that we all think about in terms of society, women going forward. Yeah. What are some of the positive things and what are some of the real actions that are being done? Like what some of the things that are being put into place in your social circles, or your society, your community, like, what's actually happening in response in a positive way? What's happening? I think I've been really encouraged to, um, I'm going to get political here, uh-oh, um, 
see the results from the election. I wasn't hugely impressed by the shift to a right-wing government that is not at all progressive on um, women's rights or environmental rights. But I was um, really encouraged to see um, new female MPs, um, progressive female MPs with progressive views about climate stepping into Parliament for the first time. Um, Hannah Mikey Clark, um, a Party Māori MP, who's 21, she's the youngest MP to enter Parliament, and I'm so proud to see that um, that we, we got her elected and that she's in there making real change, and not just being a, I think this is a really key, important um, tenet of feminism, is not to just be a female on a panel for no reason, but to actively advocate for women's rights and to actively advocate for things that affect women, like environmental change. Um, so I think that's been really encouraging. And it has also been encouraging to see um, in a less formal um, political sphere, in the activism sphere, um, to see female climate activists stepping up. Um, it was incredibly sort of bad media coverage on this, but we had in Aotearoa, we had our first activist imprisoned for climate protest, and that was a woman, and her name was Rosemary Penwarden, um, and she went to prison, to prison um, for a while. She was held in custody for some time um, for taking part in a piece of climate activism. And yeah, so it's, it's obviously depressing that women are having to go to prison for protesting these kind of things, and I'm very worried about um, the incoming government's views on protest and worried about crackdowns on environmental protest. Because um, once again, when um, there's crackdowns on those things, they do affect marginalised communities and women more when arrests are being made, they do target vulnerable people. Um, and those will be women, they'll be tennis whenua. Um, and so that's pretty discouraging, but it's also, as the challenge gets bigger, women politicians and women activists are rising to the challenge. And I think that's encouraging, and we've got to keep focusing on those women, and we've got to keep supporting those women and being those women as well. Um, we've highlighted some of the issues we see going forward in the future for young women. So, does anyone have any good solutions to solving these problems? Does anyone have any ideas about who we should look to, whether it's government, local council, particular organisations, um, to sort of make that societal change? I mean, there are challenges everywhere, whether you know, it's at career-wise, pay equity, um, everywhere, but if people don't like, how do I say this? So I'm just focusing more on the very low level where people don't even know that women can be this and that and they don't really have to be whatever the society has imposed on them. And it requires everyone to work together, men, women, um, government, it requires everyone to work together to break that intergenerational cycle and um, some of the ways we can do is by unlearning and relearning and a lot of empathy and empowerment, a lot of advocacy as well, but when people don't really have the knowledge, when people are not even aware, nothing moves forward. Um, and I was just thinking about the term future and then what is future? The way I see it is future is actually now. We often think about, you know, young women are the leaders of future, but actually they are leaders of today. And we also have to find ways, how are we going to empower and lift them up? because there are so many young people who are so passionate, who are so enthusiastic, they are doing amazing things, but future is now. So what can we do to get them there and, and you know, keep on feeling the hunger that is in them 
and it involves everyone to work together. Um, again, I want to touch on like the disparities there may be in different community groups, um, and different community groups are facing different challenges. And just again a reminder, there are still you know community groups that don't even know the rights that they have. So just continue to think about that and um, in, in, in that context as well. And let's continue to think about what can we do to support these women, all women, everywhere. And again, both men, women, government, everyone. It involves everyone's collaboration. All right, I might just pass the mic down to Ella to have an input on this question. I'll be brief. <laughs> um, so I'm quite disillusioned when it comes to any kind of organisational change. Um, I have been fairly well marginalised my whole life, um, racially, um, for my gender, um, for my age, all, all different types of um, discrimination. Um, so for me, if you want to see change, you have to do it yourself. And that's what I'm all trying to do. Well, I thought that was absolutely amazing. And I think I um, really want to thank these young women um, for sharing their, their thoughts and their passions and their ideas. Um, and we're just so pleased that we gave them the opportunity. So thank you. Margaret Lovell-Smith is the great-niece of Kitty Lovell-Smith, Hilda Lovell-Smith, who we've been celebrating in various ways for the last 50 years through events organised by the local branch of National Council of Women that attempt each year to focus on important political issues that are relevant for women's lives, but also run it as a celebratory and fundraising event which enables us to go on doing the sort of things we do as a non-governmental organisation. Now, someone who reminds us of the long history of that is someone like Margaret Lovell-Smith, because she isn't only the great-niece of Kitty Hilda Lovell-Smith. She's someone who's devoted her life as a feminist historian to recording women's activism in the late 19th century, to ensuring that the writings of those women are available to us. So exciting. 1992, she produces The Woman Question, Writings by Women Who Won the Vote. Fantastic resource that she put together for those of us who were wanting in the 80s and 90s to have access to what women over 100 years ago had to say and what we might take from them. And that was followed the next year by How Women Won the Vote, A Canterbury Perspective. So she's also, you know, many people have written about women's suffragist activities and their struggles for women's rights, but what Margaret has done is that she's focused on women who did it in the Canterbury context. And it's really important too that she wrote um, Plain Living, High Thinking, the family story of Jenny and Will Lovell Smith, um, who were the parents of Kitty Lovell Smith. So um, she's also the author of Easily the Best, The Life of Helen Connor, who made a major pioneer in women's education and tertiary education in New Zealand and in the education of a whole set of generations of other women. And she also is the person who wrote the contribution to the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography on her ancestor, Kitty Hilda Lovell-Smith. So thank you um, for inviting me to speak about my great aunt, Hilda Kate Lovell Smith, known to her friends at the NCW as HK, or as we in the family called her, Auntie Kitty. The Auntie Kitty, who I knew from the 1950s until her death in 1973, was a cheerful, friendly, elderly woman who always seemed to be sitting comfortably in an armchair 
dispensing endless cups of tea. Sarah, another member of the family who would have liked to have been here tonight but is out of town, had similar memories of Kitty. She was a warm, twinkly woman, said Sarah, who always had a biscuit for visiting children and was tolerant of their escapades, like ringing doorbells, eating fruit from the garden or sliding down the banisters. I'm sure the warm welcome which Kitty gave to her great nieces and nephews arose from her own happy rural childhood at Westcote, a small cottage situated on a 30-acre block of land in Rusty Road. The seventh of ten children, she enjoyed the fun and stimulus of her older brothers and sisters while also helping with the younger children. And this is a, um, on the family history that I wrote back in the 1980s, 90s. Um, the photo on the cover gives you a bit of a glimpse of that lifestyle with the old cottage and the children outside with their musical instruments and their pets. Kitty's education at Riggerton Primary School came to an end in 1899 when she passed Standard 6 and she later described herself as largely educated at home. Her mother had been a teacher and I'm sure she made up for any lack in Kitty's schooling. As Kitty said later, she bowed to the times and stayed at home helping her mother until she was 17. When she joined her father, her aunt Lucy, three older brothers and an older sister by going to work every day at the family printing business. Here she learnt to operate a lino typesetter and later when the firm opened a stationery shop, Kitty became the shop manager. Altogether she worked for 25 years in the printing and stationery business. Meanwhile, when the National Council of Women was revived and the Christchurch branch formed in 1917, Kitty joined as a delegate from the Women's Christian Temperance Union and was appointed the secretary the following year. And this was the beginning of a lifelong commitment to the National Council of Women. Early in 1930, Kitty and her younger sister Connie set off for Europe where Kitty attended the International Council of Women Quinquennial Conference in Vienna. This was a highlight in her life. She had grown up thinking of England as home, despite having been born in Riccarton, and to actually visit England and Europe was a tremendously exciting adventure for her. On her return home, she travelled around the country speaking about the conference. Kitty's second career began in 1932 when she was appointed General Secretary of the Young Women's Christian Association in Timaru, followed by appointments to the same role at the Dunedin and Hamilton YWCAs. So altogether she spent 15 years in paid employment for the YWCA. In 1947 she returned to Christchurch because of concern about her older sister's health. And for another 30-plus years, she almost had a third career as an active volunteer in women's organisations, including the Business and Professional Women's Club, the Pan Pacific and Southeast Asian Women's Association, and the Christchurch Seroptimist Club. And always, she was active in the NCW, which she saw as the most important organisation of all for the work it did bringing women's organisations together to influence public opinion and achieve better legislation for women's rights and opportunities. It's impossible to mention all of Kitty's activities in a short talk. But one more thing I'd like to mention is that from the time she began editing family newspapers in the 1890s, Kitty had a long-standing interest in writing and editing publications. As well as writing um, histories, she also edited periodicals for women's organisations. And one thing that Kitty and her sisters were also responsible for was preserving the records of women's organisations, including Kate Shepard's papers and correspondence, which they deposited in Canterbury Museum. 
The Christchurch NCW records went to the University Library and the National NCW records, which they had in their home also, went to the Turnbull Library. One thing I believe about Kitty is that she learned a lot of her skills and attitudes from the adults around her, her mother, her father and Auntie Kate Shepherd, who was a family friend even before Kitty was born and lived with the family for the last 30 years of her life. Tributes were paid to Kitty by several organisations over the years, recording her cheerful personality, wise counsel, generous nature and considerable intellectual gifts. I would also add her loyalty, dedication and organisational ability. She was a comfortable presence at any meeting and I'd just like to pass on a final piece of advice that Sarah reminded me that Kitty used to say, we must chew our slices of cake well to aid our digestion. Thank you to the New Zealand Council of Women Christchurch branch and to all the speakers, Leon Dalzell, Trijana Chetri, Aurora Garner-Randolph, Ella Starr, and Margaret Lovell-Smith. Make sure to follow the National Council of Women Christchurch branch on Facebook and stay up to date on events happening here in Otatahi Christchurch. You can find a podcast recording of this talk at plainsfm.org.nz under Community Talks. Matewa.